Good evening again. So good to be with you. Imagine this weather for March. You know, we're supposed to get 70 degree days in March, so let's pray, definitely. I'm going to try to be a little louder. First time I wore one of these, I felt like Garth Brooks. <laughs> and I got real dizzy because I kept crossing my eyes looking at it through the whole liturgy. So I'll try not to do that tonight, but I'll try to be a little bit clearer, a little bit louder. Apologies if I made it difficult last night for some of you. Here I am, Lord. Four simple words. We're talking about understanding God's call. And there's no way we can understand God's call unless we say those four words. Here I am, Lord. Whatever you're going to say, hit me right between the eyes with it. Part of the problem is, sometimes he doesn't hit us right between the eyes. And it's hard to understand what the Lord is calling us to be. So then again, I thank you for hearing God's call and coming tonight. Second night of a mission is always the hardest because you wake up the morning after the first night saying, what happens if nobody comes back tomorrow night? What will Father Trout say if that happens? So, <laughs> we're being uh, taped for a podcast, so I gotta be careful what I say tonight too. When I was a pastor at St. Joseph at Parish, uh, a lot of young families moving into Lincoln Park. And there's one family, and they had this pretty active child. And I watched them kind of grow from two to three to four years and five years old. And mother had the patience that a good mother has. I'm sure she didn't feel she was all that patient, but she really was. And one day after Mass, she had this proud look on her face. She said, Father, Sammy insists that we stay here. He wants to tell you something. He wants to tell you something about what you said at Mass today. Sammy, tell him what you said. And Sammy looked up and said, you sure talked for a long time. <laughs> so given the fact I talked a long time last night, for those of you who were here, thank you for coming back. If you're here for the first time, Again, thank you for putting up with this cold weather as well. Last night we talked about how we hear God's call in our lives and in our stories. Tomorrow night we'll have the opportunity to see how we respond to call of God as a people of faith, always centering around how we figure out how to live the Mass that we celebrate that is so important to us. Tonight, Given the fact that God does call us in so many ways, how can we make sure we understand what God's call means to us? What is God calling us to? So really important. Too often, we see only what we want to see. Understand it in a way that we need to understand it that just may not be God's desire. It happens all the time. When I was a young priest and started to teach at Quigley South, I was a resident in a parish in the Bridgeport community of the city, famous Bridgeport neighborhood. And 
the holiday of Christmas came around and as a resident, I didn't have that many responsibilities. I would celebrate one or two of the Christmas Day Masses, but the pastor would have the children's Mass on Christmas Eve and the Midnight Mass. And he wanted me at the Midnight Mass to kind of celebrate, but I had the time off earlier than that. And my family didn't celebrate Christmas Eve. We celebrated Christmas Day. So there was a family I knew very well. The wife was Brooklyn Irish. The dad was Brooklyn Italian, made for quite a family of children, uh, and they were great, great people. They said, come out to our house for Christmas Eve. So from Bridgeport, I went way further south of the suburbs to Worth, Illinois, and I got there. And the dad, he was just this welcoming guy, came to the door. I wasn't sure I was going to make it there. I'd had a terrible cold all week with a really, really, really rough sore throat. Taking these big horse pill antibiotics. No appetite at all. So I get to the door and I ring the doorbell. He hands me a shot and a beer. <laughs> Buon Natale. Merry Christmas. Well, the shot burns so nice going down the sore throat. Followed by the ice cold beer. Wow. Came in the house, sat down before I even got my butt on the couch. Another shot in the beer. Buon Natale. Last one, last one. Shot, felt good. Cold beer, felt better. I'm sitting there and trying to look for something to eat frantically. And of course, there was a lot of food spread around, so I'm trying to eat. And sure enough, a third one, a shot and a beer. Okay, I gotta find some food now that I finished that one. I ate whatever I could find, but I knew I was in trouble because I couldn't feel my upper lip anymore. <laughs> what am I gonna do? And then I see the dad yelling at his sons in the kitchen. And he comes up to me and he says, Fada, that's what he called me, Fada, Fada Grassi. Father, I gotta apologize. My boys goofed up. I said, I'm getting Father a shot in the beer. So you get the beer. And they thought they had to put a shot in the beer. So there was a shot in the beer and the shot he gave me. Well, I made the decision not to drive home from Worth to the Ridgeport neighborhood. The dad was mad at his son, so he made the one son drive me home in my car, the other son follow in the family car so his brother could get a ride back home that night. I get to the parish, and the pastor, who was a new pastor and clearly enjoyed being the pastor, said, you are con-celebrating Midnight Mass. I looked at the altar. He had put a chair next to his chair. I said, this is not going to work. The chair had no arms. <laughs> and already the reputation of this particular pastor was that if he didn't talk for 45 minutes in a homily, he wasn't satisfied. I said, I think I might fall asleep during his homily. So I, when he wasn't looking, switched to a chair with arms. Good idea. And I said, well, what do I do 
if I start looking like those little bobble toys, you know, <laughs> with the head, I get it. I'm going to rest my arm on the chair's arm and hold my head up. What do I do if my eyes close? What am I going to do to stay awake? Well, the pastor had this need to remind us that he was pastor, so I bet myself that at least 10 times in the course of his homily, he would remind us that he is the pastor in one way or another. So he started the homily. As your pastor, I wish you a Merry Christmas. And as your pastor, I know the staff would want me to wish you a Merry Christmas. As a pastor, and I'm counting one, two, three, eight, nine, ten. All right. Eleven, twelve, fifteen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty times he let us know he was the pastor. Well, I made it through the Mass without any incident. And don't go home and say, yeah, Father Grassi, the mission told us how he got drunk at Mass on Christmas. Please put it into a context so I don't get a call from downtown. When you're retired, you'd like to fly under the radar, you know, don't do that to me. So after Mass, I'm in the back of the church greeting people, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And a gentleman from the parish came up to me and he grabbed me by both of the hands and shook my hand. He said, Father, I want you to know this. And I thought to myself, he'd had a few shot in the beers too. <laughs> he said, I want you to know this. In all my life, I've never seen a priest pay such close and wonderful attention to another priest who was preaching. Thank you. <laughs> Merry Christmas. He went down the front stairs, I'm going, oh, gee. Turns around, comes back up, grabs me in a big bear hug. Father, it meant so much to me to see you so interested in the homily. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a good Christmas. Well, he saw what he needed to see that night. I don't think God was working through me at that particular moment in history. I don't think uh, God was trying to get him to see this. That happens to us so often. We think we're understanding what God wants from us and we're not. That's not always bad, not always dangerous, but it doesn't always be helpful as well. So we've got to try to figure out really if we understand God's call, letting God really work in God's way. But why a whole evening to do this? Why do I make this the topic for an evening, understanding God's call in our lives. Well, sometimes we put our own agenda first and we justify our actions saying this is what God wants. This is what God wants. And we don't hear God's message even if we can verbalize what God wants of us. We don't fully understand it. So this is the next revelatory story I'm going to tell you. After that, I'll be nice and I'll sound holier than I've sounded so far tonight. Again, please put it in its proper context. I was young. I wasn't even ordained a priesthood. I was just a deacon, and I was foolish, and I was hot-headed, 
and probably my best defense was I was Italian. I was a deacon at St. Sabina Parish on the south side of the city, and Sunday afternoons in our family's house, my mom and dad's house, was still Sunday pasta. We all gathered for Sunday pasta. My brother who lived in Elmhurst would come from Elmhurst with his kids. My brother who lived in Palatine would come from Palatine with his kids, and I would come from the south side of the city. And if you know anything about pasta, pasta waits for no one. A good pasta has to be served when the pasta is ready. If not, it loses its al dente, it loses its teeth, bite, and it's going to just be mushy. So mom would serve it when it was ready. And my brothers, despite all their kids, would get there on time. And I knew I had to be there on time. So I preached a wonderful sermon about love and compassion, taking the time to uh, understand where other people are coming from, not to be judgmental, uh, to put yourself in other people's shoes. I don't remember the gospel, I don't remember the time of the year, but I do remember the homily, and this is the reason why I remember it. I get in the car, I'm driving east down 79th Street to get to the Dan Ryan Expressway to head north to get on the outer drive, to head to Foster to get to my folks, and going down 79th Street, the car in front of me is doing about 12 miles an hour. And I tap on the horn, and they're still doing 12 miles an hour. Flash the lights a little bit, still doing 12 miles an hour. Wait till there's a break in oncoming traffic, try to go around them. Just as I get around them, they speed up to keep up with me. Then I have to get back behind them. I'm angry now. I don't want to miss my Sunday pasta. So finally, there's a break in traffic. I go to go around them. I roll down the window with one hand. I have my thumb on the horn with the other. I stick my arm out the window and I give them what we can only say in church is a universal hand signal of displeasure. And I look at them, and they were a nice elderly couple who had just been at my mass. <laughs> just heard my homily. I tried to switch it into a wave. It didn't work. The next Sunday, I stood by the back door, they went out the side door. The next Sunday, I went to the side door, they went out the back door. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. You know, tell me, did I understand a word that I was saying that was God's message? Not at all. It was all about me. And when we start thinking things are all about us and poor us and what our needs are, good chance we're probably not understanding what God is asking of us. And I gotta tell you, I've never done that again. Because it might be one of you, who knows? You know? <laughs> gotta be careful. We need to be careful. I said yesterday that none of us have a pipeline to hear God's call. We have to be cautious. Some people do believe they have all the answers. What I can say for sure is each one of us understands God's call in the way that is right for us. I can't tell you you've got to understand God in just this way. And this is what God exactly is saying to you. It doesn't work that way. Each one of us brings our history 
to the voice of God. We bring our stories. We bring what's deep inside of us. And all of that is going to be what God uses to help us to understand what God wants of us. And sometimes we don't even know what's inside of us. You know, we all have these quirky things in our lives. We don't know where they came from. You want to get me real upset, slam a door at my face. It's happened to me only a few times in life. One with a pastor, another one with a good friend. The wind caught the door. We were discussing something, disagreeing, caught the door. Both times I jumped up and I wanted to go through the door and go after them. It just absolutely, something snaps inside of me. As a kid, somebody must have slammed a door in my face. Something must have happened or maybe even had a nightmare about it or something like that. But we only ourselves, the pile of stuff that is us, God uses that particular to us. So you could be standing here and you can be standing here and something could happen and this will mean nothing to you and it will be a miraculous message of God for you over here. It's because of who you are. That's how God works. That's how God works. That's how we pray uniquely. That's why when we come to Mass, we won't all get the same thing out of Mass. We won't get the same thing out of the sermon. We won't get the same thing out of the same prayers we sing, the prayers we pray, the hymns we sing. We bring who we are. So it isn't always clear or easy to understand what God is calling us to. It just plain isn't. So for a little bit now, I just want to share with you my experience of ways that I found that I can understand God. They may not be ways for you. One or two of them may, may resonate, maybe none of them will. But hopefully I'll get everyone here in church to think about how is it that I understand what God is asking of me? So let's have a go at it. First thing I've learned is that God doesn't call us and then walk away and leave us all alone. God does, God works in God's ways. It's what makes God, God. We're not God. We can't understand God's ways all the time. Um, the covenant promise that is made throughout Scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's more than just a promise. It's a covenant that God makes. If we're open to God, if we keep the faith, he will always be our God. And that's going to help us to understand what God wants of us. Because God is relentless. God does not give up on us. And he doesn't always call us the same way. We can't say, well, you know, I was in church and I heard this hymn and all of a sudden I knew what God was asking me to do. It answered my question. And the next week I hear that hymn and that was nice. It doesn't always hit us the same way. That's really, really important. Um, we've got to find how it might be. And that's why we have to be faithful and regular in our individual prayer life. Sometimes it'll be rich and full, and sometimes why am I just going through the motions? We don't know when it's going to hit us. That's why we come to Mass. Some, some Masses will just fill us with grace and joy 
Another mass is, okay, we got that done, what do we got to do the rest of Sunday? It's just the way it is. But we also realize our very presence with one another is a support because the very presence of being here might be what the other people need or another person needs to see, that they're not alone. So I talked a lot about that yesterday, but it's important to realize that God is there with us. You know, we hear the call, then we got to try to understand it. The week I was ordained a deacon in May of 1972, I had my new black suit, my new black Roman, my black and white Roman collar and rabbi. I looked really like I was somebody. And I was excited because that Saturday I was going to a wedding. I wasn't going to celebrate it. I was just going to be there, but I'd be all dressed up. It was a good friend of mine. My brother had been the director of the Archdiocesan Head Start program, and he hired me for a summer job for a couple of years. And there were three or four college-age girls there as well, and they hired another one or two of my classmates. We were kind of a group that got together, and we would go out. We couldn't say we dated or we would have been kicked out of the seminary, so we just went out. And one of the girls, Peggy, was getting married. And I was in the pew, and the wedding started, the attendance came up, and Peggy came up the aisle. I remember her as looking as beautiful as the young Elizabeth Taylor. My memory probably has increased her beauty over the decades, who knows. But she was a beautiful bride with the raven hair and the, the almost purple eyes or the rich, deep blue eyes. And she went up the aisle past me, and there was her husband-to-be waiting for her, clearly with tears in his eyes. And I sat there, and I felt like somebody had just taken a two-by-four and hit me right in the gut. I got up quietly, walked out of the church, got into the car, drove to the rectory I was living in, pulled down all the drapes, and said to myself, Oh, sweet Lord, what have I done with my life? I just got ordained. I'm a celibate now. And I'm thinking, idiot, it's too late to be asking those questions now. That all took place. But that's when it hit me. And I realized I'd have to do something about it. I don't know if I've succeeded or not, but I've been doing it for 45 years. And I think there's been some progress in understanding what God wants of me. But we never know when it's going to hit us. It's when I learned that God would still be there with me no matter what. The sun was going to rise the next day no matter what. God would work with me no matter what. I am not abandoned. God always walks with us. And that's what we really need to know. And we need to know that sometimes we slip and fall and we get up and we walk again. And sometimes real-life situations help us to see the spiritual dimensions of all of that stuff. Um, When I banged my leg and had surgery on it and nearly lost the leg from an infection, um, I was in the hospital 28 days and I needed uh, physical therapy afterwards. And like I said yesterday, the therapists are these tiny little women, they're going to lug my body around and toss it around and make me do things I couldn't do when I had two good legs. 
And I had this one gal who was a physical therapist, and she knew I was a priest, and she was telling me that she was expecting a child. I said, be careful then lifting me and throwing me around, and she laughed. She said she was having a problem. Her husband happened to be Episcopalian, happened to have some issues with the Catholic Church, did not want to have the child baptized in the Catholic Church. I said, listen, when I get out of here, you give me a call. I'll meet with you and your husband. Let's see what we can do. And I met with her and her husband when I got out of the hospital. She was the one that taught me how to walk again. And all of a sudden, there we are at a baptism. I'm standing there. I can walk. I'm no longer in a wheelchair, no longer in a walker, no longer with a cane. And I said to everybody there, she is the reason, literally, I am standing here today. God worked through her. And that's how God works in our lives, through people around us. You know, uh, when we feel we can't take another step, God will be there for us. And then there's the ripple effect. If I wasn't there getting physical therapy, maybe her child would not have been baptized in the Catholic Church. Who knows? That's all part of God's plans, which are much bigger than any of our plans. The second thing I have learned is God's plan usually plays out not just on special occasions, but in our daily, everyday lives and everyday stories, things that happen to us. It's not always the big things that happen. Precious few of us in this room are called to be heroes or martyrs, even missionaries or canonized saints. When I was in the fifth grade, Sister Mary Annette, Mercy Sister, a great storyteller, told us a story of the Last Judgment. And I was sitting there with my mouth hanging open as she said, there would be the bugle of Gabriel and we all would rise from the dead and God would separate the good sheep from the bad sheep. You're going to be in one of those piles. And I'm sitting there going, oh my God. And then she said something that really scared me. She said, you know, your sins are going to be out there for everybody to see. Oh, sweet Lord. And then she took it another step. Not only are the sins you committed, but the things you thought you wanted to do. Now I'm really in trouble because I had these thoughts about what I wanted to do to Sister Annette and she's going to know that at the judgment day. I panicked. I went home. My oldest brother was a freshman in high school, so he was wise. I said, Joe, what about this final judgment thing? And he looked at me very sage-like. He said, I've thought about that. I've got the answer. He said, listen, everybody's going to have all their sins out there in front of them, all going to be worried about themselves. They're not going to have time to look at anybody else before God makes his decision. You're okay. <laughs> that made me feel better. Because, again, sometimes we take things trying to understand what God wants of us, and we put so much pressure on us. And maybe the answers are much simpler than we might even realize. Very important today to realize that God, God's ways are what we have to trust, even when we can't put it into words. Simple daily ways we can see God working around us, not even just in us. I was at Mariano's shopping the other day, and as usual, I was in the longest line, 
and next line over, three or four customers were going. And I noticed in the next line over, there was a woman, nicely dressed, makeup on, but her head was bald. That look of chemotherapy, you know, the hair is falling out. She had a little cover on her head. And she was buying one orange, waiting patiently in line. And the woman in front of her had a big order. And I'm thinking maybe she just came from chemo or radiation or whatever. Maybe she just needs to get this sugar in her system. I was making up all these stories. I knew nothing about her. And I watched. And as she stood there in line, the woman in front of her said, she grabbed the orange, she said, put this on my bill so this woman doesn't have to wait. They rang up the orange and the woman went around and left. She didn't say, what's wrong with you? Are you sick? I'll take care of it. I'll buy this for you. She made it just a simple, simple act of kindness so the woman wouldn't be embarrassed or feel like people are staring at her or anything at all. And I said, wow, that woman with the big order, she understood at that moment what God needed her to do. She may not have been able to put it into those words, but she did what God wanted her to do, the simple thing. Another way we can determine what God is asking of us, if it's really something that God wants of us, if we're understanding it the right way, is to realize God doesn't change his mind. What God called the disciples to do in Scripture is exactly what God calls us to do in our very different world, in this very different era, in this very different place. The story of the Good Samaritan doesn't change. We are called to stop and take care of those in need, to love those who are not considered lovable, and not to judge other people because of their religion that they can't be right, that only we have the right answers. And we need to see that that happens over and over again. Again, I always base these things on our human experience because there's no way of understanding God if we don't understand ourselves as human beings. So another human story. Christmas time would come around. My dad and uncle owned the grocery store together. My uncle didn't like to give out uh, bonuses to the, to the employees. My dad was different about that. So he found ways of doing it. Every Christmas day, because we didn't sell Christmas Eve, like I said yesterday, the store was open late. Every Christmas day, we would get up. After Mass, we would come home. And we couldn't go by the tree or anything. We had to wait. My mom would be cooking a meal for 30 or 40 people in the kitchen that would come later, relatives, family, friends. But it was still early. The doorbell will ring, and the first miracle that occurred was my dad answering the door, because he never, any other time of the year, got up to answer the door when the doorbell rang. It wasn't his job. And at the door every year would be the same person. It would be Louis, Louis the butcher. Louis stood about this tall, hard to recognize, because every day at work he wore the white smock with the blood from the cows they have just cut apart, and the pigs and the chickens and everything dressed to the hilt, a beautiful coat on, his fedora head on, his pencil mustache trimmed absolutely perfect, and carrying a case with him as he walked in. 
And dad would pat Louie in the back and wish him a Merry Christmas. And he called my brothers and I together and we would follow dad into the living room, past where the tree was, looking longingly, not at the gifts under the tree, at the, at the gifts under the tree, but not at the tree itself. It was the ugliest tree you ever saw. It would be the last tree that dad didn't sell in the front of the store. And you know what that tree looked like. He'd bring it home and my mom would say, that's an ugly tree. He said, I saved the best for last, yeah. And my mom said, well, do something with it. He said, I'll put the bad side against the wall. How many times do we hear that growing up? My mom said, they're all bad sides. So dad would get out his pruning stuff that he would use on the fig tree I talked about yesterday, and he would go at it. And the trees were usually too tall for the ceiling, so he'd take some off the top, and he'd take some off the bottom, and they were too wide, take some off the side, and pretty soon we had a rectangular Christmas tree with holes in it. So we weren't looking at the tree, we were looking at all the gifts we couldn't open until all this stuff ended. We went into the parlor, my brothers and I sat on the couch, being the youngest, I got pinched by the two brothers on either side of me until Dad gave them the famous grassy look and they stopped. And Louis would be standing next to him, looking a little nervous. And Dad would say, Boys, Louis is here. He is going to serenade us on his violin with some beautiful Christmas music. And Louis would set the violin on the coffee table, open the case, pull out the violin. And then what would happen one year, he'd go, oh no, I forgot the bow. Another year, look at the bow, it's, the strings are broken. Another year, oh, one of the strings and the violin is, I can't play, I'm so sorry. And dad would say, that's okay, Louis, I understand. And Louis would put the guitar back. And he said, I know what you can do. He said, Louis, sing for us some Italian Christmas music. And he turned to my brothers and say, Louis used to sing in the chorus at La Scala in Milan. And we'd all go, ooh, I had no idea what the chorus, those words meant. What's a chorus in La Scala and where's Milan? I don't know. We all go, ooh. And Louis would say, por favor, un, un, un bicchiere di acqua, a little glass of water. And my mom would run in with a little glass of water. And then we'd go, un bicchiere di anisette. And my mom would bring the bottle of anisette and pour him a little drink. <clears throat> a little more anisette. Louis downed about three or four good shots of anisette and would turn to my dad and say, Signora Grassi, no, no, I got a, a la flu, la flu, influenza, la cold. I got a, no, 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 not this year. Every year this happened. Dad would pat him on the back and say, that's okay, Louis, next year. That would be my mom's cue to bring out some espresso coffee, some biscotti. Louis looked very relieved. He'd have his biscotti, would have his espresso, and then Dad would walk him to the door, and that was our cue to head to the presents and get ready to open the presents. But we still had to wait until Dad said goodbye to Louis. And one year, instead of looking at the presents, I looked at my dad, and he had reached into his pocket and gave Louis a $50 bill. In 1955, 1956, you could buy a car, a used car probably for that money. So, that was one of the gifts my dad gave me, the generosity that he had. He didn't need us to see that or anything. And then we'd go open our gifts. 
If it was a good year at the store, there were a lot of gifts. If it wasn't a good year, there were at least something. But the gift of my dad's generosity is a gift I'll never forget. Because it reminds me, we don't have to earn God's generosity. If we understand that, we're going to understand what God is asking for us. It's not a game of this or that. Oh, I should pray more. You know, if I prayed more, God would give me what I want. It doesn't work that way. It really and truly doesn't. God does it in God's way, and we see that all the time in our, in our, in our everyday life. I've also learned that certain themes run through the way God calls us, and they're different for us. Certainly one constant is God's love is unconditional, not based on how good a person we are or how bad we might have been earlier in life. God isn't like that. But there are other themes in life that, that keep reappearing that help us understand how God works. Resurrection, rebirth. We see that in nature. By the end of this terrible month, God willing, there might even be a little shoot growing up out of the grass somewhere. Hard to believe that right about now, but that just might be the case. Death and redemption. God is always there. We can always come back to the Lord. He's never going to close the door on us. We need to understand that or we won't understand anything else God is trying to say to us. God heals us. He heals us sometimes physically, maybe not always. Certainly heals us spiritually, heals us emotionally, is there for us. The resurrection is around us, new life that we need to know that death is not the final answer, eternal life. And in other ways we pray, and each of us prays in our own way, we find there are things that happen around us that will help us understand what God is doing with us. The cycle of life and nature is probably the most obvious, the profound ways God looks at, asks us to look at the greater mysteries and to respond to them with our lives. And sometimes God works with us in ways that are beyond understanding. When I was not even born, 10 months before I was born, the oldest in our family was my sister Anna Maria, and she was to die of polio. And one of the stories I had heard from my parents about her was at the hospital, Cook County Hospital, behind a glass wall, they couldn't go to touch her or see her. It was a few months before she would have made her first Holy Communion. And uh, nobody was allowed in the ward except the doctors and the nurses on the other side of the glass. A priest from the parish on no uncertain terms said he was going in there, and he did. And he gave my sister her first Holy Communion literally on her deathbed. She was buried in her first communion dress a few days later. That story's always stayed with me. Not fully understanding how God could do that to parents and the innocence of a child, but it was there. So fast forward, and this would have been about seven, eight years ago now. We had a little second grader named Jake. Jake was a neat kid. First grade, he started getting headaches, getting nauseous, 
found out he had a brain tumor. And they worked with him as best they could. Second grade came around, we moved the second grade classroom he would be in closest to the bathroom and on the first floor so we wouldn't have to worry about stairs. Jake didn't come to school very much at that point in history. And he got worse and worse. And Jake ended up in Children's Hospital before they tore the one down on Fullerton Avenue in Chicago. And on Super Bowl Sunday night, I got the call. Father, it's time. I think we need you to anoint Jake. It was about two months before his first communion. So I went to church, to the tabernacle, took out the precious body of Christ, put it in the picks, carried it in the pocket next to my heart with me to Children's Hospital. It was a surreal place to be because every television and every room we walked past had the shouts and the cheering of the Super Bowl going on. I went into Jake's room and there were his parents there in just absolute shock and his grandparents who were just wonderful parishioners. And I looked at Jake and I thought I'd see a, a child either unconscious or looking terribly ill. His eyes were bright, they were wide open. He smiled when we saw me, I could see it under his mask. And he was wearing Star Wars pajamas. And I went up to him and I said, Jake, with that mask you look just like Luke Skywalker. I'm gonna tell your classmates tomorrow. And he gave me a thumbs up sign. And I said to the family, let's say a little prayer with Jake. And I expressed to him that I was gonna give him Holy Communion. And the nurse patted my shoulder and said, Father, we can't take the mask off. It's force breathing him now and we're afraid he would absolutely panic. I'm sorry. And I said, don't be, I don't wanna do anything that would make the situation more difficult. So I broke the host into pieces for the parents and the grandparents. And they shared in the Eucharist. And I said, let's bow our heads and pray. And I looked over at Jake and he was looking out the door and he started to smile and he put his hand out and I turned to his parents and I said, your son is making his first Holy Communion right now. The Lord is coming from him. Go hold him tight. And the parents and the godparents held him and he took his very last breath. It was an incredible moment, an absolutely incredible moment of God's presence, trying to understand what that meant. A few days later, there was the funeral. And we determined that the children should not sit as a class at the funeral, but they should sit with their parents because the children were confused and scared. And I went up, the church has a high pulpit. I went up and I looked down for the homily and I saw the parents holding their children. And I could see the struggle in the parents. Part of them felt so bad for Jake's parents. And part of them felt guilty because they felt the relief that it wasn't their child. It was a true, true struggle that they were going through. And so I told them the story of Jake. 
in his first and last Holy Communion. And then I heard myself, I wasn't planning, I was just gonna say what I said to you now, but I said it went further. Just the words that came out of my mouth was, so I had a feeling that while we were praying, the Lord scooped up Jake in his arms. And Jake always had a thousand questions for me, for the doctors, for everybody. And Jake said, where are we going? And the Lord said, we're gonna go to where there are a lot of other little children like you that can play. And he said, are they gonna know why they had to go there? What happened to them too? And he said, no, they don't remember and neither are you. And they walked off to heaven. I don't know why they came out of me, but it's what the children needed to hear because somehow in the innocence of children, remember yesterday we talked about all the noise out there. I think children hear and see things much more clearly than we do sometimes. Problem is, as the years go on, we forget some of those, with some of those beautiful God moments that we've had. They get lost as we get older. And I think that may be what has happened. I've also learned that God's call is a call and an invitation to discipleship and to action. We need to understand that. Mass sends us forth. The Mass says, we're, we're done here. It doesn't say, we're done here now, come back next week. It's a, it's a sending forth to do the Lord's work. But I'm going to talk more about that last night, than tomorrow night, so let's leave that now. We've got to learn that the actions the Lord expects of us are for the good of others and not just for ourselves. An apparently successful life doesn't mean we are doing a good job of responding to God's call. A good life, a fancy car, a big home is not the only sign of God's love for us because there's a whole lot of our world that doesn't have those gifts. I was trying to share this in a talk at another parish, Queen of All Saints Basilica in Chicago. Church looks a little different than this one. It's that long, long aisle, much harder to connect. You're miles away from the people. So after the talk, and I was trying to say, you know, God loves each and every one of us, no matter what's going on in our lives. I see this young man come out of church with his mother. She's helping him walk. He's a little uneasy on his feet. I look at him, and his head's been shaved, and there are, there are ink lines on his head, clearly for radiation. And he comes walking toward me. I said, oh, he's going to be angry at me. How can I possibly say God loves us no matter what? And this is what's going on in his life. And he walked up to me and he looked me right in the eyes and said, I didn't want to be here tonight. My mom made me come here tonight. I'll let you know if I can someday feel God's love for me. And I said, I'm going to be praying and I hope you were able to feel that. Who knows? I never saw him again in our lives. I've also learned that God calls us to do battle against the evil that is in our world. That's part of every call. That's part of our baptism. We're anointed with the oil of salvation when we're baptized on the top of our head after the water is poured. Before that, we're anointed on the chest. 
Getting ready to do battle, the soldiers would put the oil all over their body. They fought hand to hand so they could slip out of their opponent's grasp. It gave them an advantage. That's the advantage our baptism gives us to fight the evil in our world. It's very important to do that. Um, We have to be able to do that. And again, sometimes little children know it better than we can sometimes articulate it. One Ash Wednesday, uh, the principal decided we'd do it a little bit different. She decided not to bring the kindergarten children for ashes because she thought it was over their head a little bit the way it's talked about in church. And she said, can you put something together in the kindergarten room that would be more their level? That's kind of a challenge. So I did, and I brought uh, one of the mothers of uh, a student I had taught many years before who played a beautiful guitar. And uh, we went and we sat on the floor with the children, and we talked about Jesus loving us. We talked about, you know, where ashes come from, from fires. And we talked about, we're going to put a little bit on the forehead and just say, uh, Jesus, help me do better and be with me and things like that. And so we did all of that, and then I said, anybody have any questions? And the little guy raised his hand and said, no one did it to your mother over here. <laughs> Mrs. Woodrow didn't like being called my mother at that point, but she was. And she said, can I do it? I said, sure, you go ahead and give Mrs. Woodrow the ashes, and you say what you want to say. I was wondering what he would say. So he put his finger in the ashes, and he went up to her, and he said, you got to do better. (laughs) Maybe one of the priests will say that to you Wednesday. I don't know. You know, you come for it. We do battle against the evil in our world. We got to do better. Usually not big evils in our lives, a lot of little things that add up, isn't it? A lot of little things in our lives we know we can do better. We have to understand that. Uh, One year in the seminary, there were four of us who had the incredible privilege of not living on campus at St. Mary of the Lake. We had an experiment. We lived off campus in Waukegan on Washington Street. We rented a house and turned the storefront into a teen drop-in center. We worked out of what was then St. Joseph's Parish, and we were a Catholic presence for the young people in the community while still driving to Mundelein, taking all our courses, not missing a single uh, formation event, uh, just something we, we did it for two years, actually. It was quite an experiment, and uh, all four of us were able to get ordained. But we also learned how to do our wash together and cook together, and we take turns cooking. And one of the guys uh, said he was going to make his famous chili. I've never heard of a famous Irish chili before. They make other great dishes, don't get me wrong. But he made this chili, and we told him how great it was, and it was the blandest chili in the world. So, of course, next month he said, I'm going to make my chili again. Okay. So he made the chili, and he was letting it simmer on the, on the uh, stove. And when he wasn't looking, I went in and took some chili peppers and threw them in. And later on, when he wasn't looking, unbeknownst to either me or him, one of the other guys took the bottle of hot sauce 
and put some more of that in there. And unbeknownst to any of us, the third guy came in and put some black pepper into it. And when we sat down to eat, it burned our mouths. And he looked at us and said, that's the best chili I've ever made. (laughs) It all adds up. Sometimes it adds up for the good. Sometimes it adds up and it's inevitable. Not inedible, not inevitable, inedible. Um, Remember, Jesus begins his public ministry in the desert, defeating Satan. Satan tries to tempt him, he defeats him. That's important, that we're always going to be struggling against sin, against evil. And we use Lent to come out of the desert into the reality of the world in which we live and take the presence of God. If we do that, if that's our mentality, I'm here to do better, then we're going to understand the different ways God calls us. I know this is abstract, but I can't say God's going to call you exactly this way, and tomorrow God's going to call you around 4.30. Be ready for it. God works in God's way. And just if, if that's all I'm saying that you hear, please be open to it. Sometimes we need to hear God when we're alone. That's why we pray silently. That's why we have quiet prayer. But we seem to also understand God when we're in the midst of others. That's why we come to Mass. We gather the support, the grace we share pours out of us and into each other. It overwhelms us. It fills us up. We're part of a community of faith here. And that's really important to know. All the apostles were at the Last Supper. Remember that. It was that important that they were all there when the Last Supper started. That's how we come together to worship. We're here together. Why the Mass is so important. I was helping out at St. Germain Parish in Oak Lawn, uh, and they, they had a 7 o'clock Sunday morning Mass, and I lived on Quigley South's campus, so I was driving there to do the early Mass, and uh, it was the Oaklawn Marathon. And almost every street was blocked to the church. And I'm getting frustrated. I'm looking at my watch. I got to get there. Finally, there's an opening and I shoot there and it's about five minutes to seven and my mind is scattered all over the place. I'm out there, mass is starting and I realize unless I focus, I'm not going to be able to pray. I'm not going to be able to say anything of any value in the homily. So I looked around And there in the first pew is a woman looking very sad, very troubled. And I said, she's going to be the one I'm going to pray to at this Mass. She's going to be the focus of this Mass. I don't know what's going on, but I need to focus somehow, and I did. About eight months later, I was leaving St. Germain's to become a pastor. And the pastor there said, we'll have to have a farewell liturgy for you. I said, no, I was just a a resident here. I wasn't a full-time associate. He said, people need to be able to say goodbye. I said, okay. So we had something that day, and I got a pile of cards and thank yous, and it was really very supportive and very nice. And one of the cards I got, the note said, you don't know me, but I was at Mass one Sunday. I was sitting in the front and I was really troubled, and I felt you were praying right to me and for me. Now, I have no idea if that was the woman or not, but I want to believe it is, so it was. I'm going to believe it is. 
I need to believe it. That's how God works in God's ways. Um, God doesn't do things to even things out, doesn't give us tests. Okay, if you do this, I'm going to do this for you. God doesn't do that. God is always there for us. I've learned that. So why do sometimes we feel abandoned? We, it usually means our faith isn't strong enough. I got a call one day from St. Joseph at Parish to go to Illinois Masonic Hospital uh, to the neonatal unit. The baby was born premature and family wanted her baptized because she probably wasn't going to live. Uh, so I went to the hospital and at the front door, a young girl, Hispanic girl, met me because her parents didn't speak English. She was only about 10 or 11, 12 years old maybe. She took me up to the neonatal unit. She introduced me to the parents. She translated back and forth. And um, the nurse said, I've got uh, some sterilized water for you to use. We don't want to use anything else. Um, we can only have the baby out of the incubator for just a minute or two. Um, we're going to put a little hat on its head so it doesn't lose heat. When you pour the water, take the head off just for a second, put it back on. I said, um, would the mother be able to hold the baby? She had never held her child. She said, I think we can do that, but you got to make it fast. So we gave the baby to the mother. And then I realized, wait a minute. I said, ask your parents, what name do I baptize their baby? And, and the father said, Gloria, glory of the Dio. She is the glory of God. And so I baptized Gloria, put the hat back on, baby back in the incubator. Gloria did not survive. We had a beautiful mass of the resurrection for her. And later on that year, her older sister made her confirmation. And as pastor, I was holding the oils, standing next to Bishop Gregory, my classmate, who was doing the confirmation. And I said to Wilt, um, Ask her why she chose that name, because on her name tag it said Gloria. and said, why did you choose the name Gloria for your saint? My sister is the glory of God in heaven. The father's faith was so strong, it made it down to the daughter there. The parents would have wanted a perfect child, everyone does. Parents would want a child that would grow and have a great life, everyone does. Doesn't always happen. But still, God is present in whatever happens. And it was a beautiful moment then for the baby at the baptism and for the sister who understood life a little bit better. God is not a villain. God isn't doing things to punish us. God is there for us. And we turn God into a villain sometimes. Um, and that's not a good thing to do. Martha of Mary and Martha fame. Lord, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. Translation, it's all your fault. No, we say those things, that's not how God, has worked. God works. Yeah, I said yesterday it's okay like Job to get angry at God, shake our fist at God, but God's not the villain. God sees a bigger picture. And sometimes the best that can happen is to realize God is crying with us. Nothing else that can happen but God shedding a tear with us. God's understanding for us is a gift that God gives to us. And we can choose to accept to understand God or not. 
It's freely given to us. Uh, when my dad turned 75, I took him to renew his license. Uh, he was a definite proof of the existence of guardian angels. He had one on, over each headlight of his car, pushing traffic out of the way, so my dad could go in the wrong lane and everything. So getting to the uh, state's, uh, Secretary of State's testing place, I had mixed feelings. Part of me prayed that he wouldn't get his license. He was really slowed down and dangerous. And uh, part of me prayed that that would, might just, you know, age him terribly. So Lord, do what is best. And he came out after about an hour. I wanted to check and see if he had fallen asleep during the written test or something, but they wouldn't let me in. And he didn't pass. He didn't even make it to the driving part of the test. And so he handed me the keys and he said, the car is yours. Well, the car had more dinks in it than you could possibly imagine. It was an old car. And then he said to my oldest brother when he got home, the car is yours. And he said to my two middle brothers, each separately, the car is yours. Then he called us all in and said, and he said, I got a check for each of you. I said, what for, Dad? He said, I promised you all the car. I don't, I don't get back on my promises. And he tried to hand each of us a check for $10,000 each. The old Dodger was worth about $500 best. So he said, no, Dad, we're okay. We're okay. Sometimes God works in ways that we just don't understand and wants to give us things that we don't deserve or maybe more than we'd ever expect. I've also learned that God's call is never over, never complete, never finished. No matter at what point we are in life, God continues to call us, young and old, close to God, far away from God, God calls us. Maybe not this day the way he called us 20 years ago, but God calls us, just like God continually recalled his disciples. Take them and explain the parables to them. Take them up the mountain, talk to them and go walking somewhere. Always there, he continually recalled them, come follow me. But like the apostles, we are stubborn. We need to hear that call over and over again. People ask, where are you from in Italy? I say, Puglia. Bari, and they all go, if you're from that area, testadura, hard-headed. You know, sometimes we're just so hard-headed, we don't see what God is asking of us and how God is calling us. It comes to us in very interesting ways. When I was in the second grade, something very prophetic happened. The school decided to have a vocation pageant. And that meant the little second grade girls dressed up in the religious habits of all the different orders of nuns. And you know, from the, if you're young, you know from the movies, if a lot of us remember from reality, they're very unique. You knew the Daughters of Charity, you know, God's geese with the big things. You knew the Mercy Nuns. Uh, you knew the Benedictines. You knew the Dominicans. You knew the Franciscans. I swear that George Lucas, by the way, was trained by Mercy Nuns. Because if you looked at Darth Vader from a back shot. He looked just like a mercy nun and wheezed like a lot of them used to wheeze when I was a kid. Um, I hope there are no mercy nuns here tonight. Just a joke, just a joke. And so the girls would come out dressed like that. And of course, the last one 
would be a sister of mercy because we had mercy nuns teaching us and there'd be wild applause. Then the boys came out, much more boring, Jesuit, Franciscan, Dominican. I got to be one of the two that dressed up as a diocesan priest. My talent was I had a big head, Father Clark had a small head, so his beretta fitted on top of my head without going over my eyes and nose. So I was the one with the speech. And I got to say in my speech, after attending Quigley, you are sent to St. Mary of the Lake Cemetery. (laughs) That was exactly the reaction I got. (laughs) Sensitive little man that I was, I ran off the stage and ran into the boys' bathroom and I would not come out. Pretty soon my mom is knocking on the boys' bathroom door. Dominic, come out. No. Dominic, come out now. No. Dominic, if you don't come out, I'm coming in and getting you. Sister Marion said there are no girls allowed in the boys' bathroom. Makes no difference to me. And meanwhile, they've got those urinals that flush every minute that just scared the heck out of me. Just, just scared the heck out of me. So I was not going to leave the bathroom. And then my mom, in her wisdom, said those words that made all the difference in the world. And today, when life is rough and I don't feel God's presence with me, I say those words to myself, and a difference is made. She said to me, let's go get a hot fudge sundae. (laughs) I was out that door. Life was good again. My dear friends, God calls us in so many ways, and it's so hard to understand that. I wish I had some magic answers, keys I could give you. It's complex, life is complex, and we have to try to understand what God is asking of us in our humanity, in our frailness, in our sinfulness. You know, uh, my sinfulness I've shared with you. God still is there, and we've got to understand what God is asking of us because we won't get to tomorrow, which is the essential part of the retreat. How do we as a community of faith respond to God's call for us? I'm going to tell you one last story here because it is the beauty of how God calls us sometimes. You know, I told you about Jake and how sad that was. For his funeral, the parish, the school, religious ed, the whole parish made origami butterflies. And they were all hand-painted. You got to make them in tables in the back of church or in the classroom. And the church had a very high ceiling, a Gothic church. And there is lights in the ceiling that you change from above the lights, a little walkway. I never went up on it. And uh, through one of the spotlights, right down to the, where the center aisle starts in the back of the church, right next to the baptistry, they put down fish wire and attached the origami on a uh, mobile like about an eight-layer mobile. 
And because Jake loved butterflies, his holy card was a picture of a butterfly he had painted. A flower arrangement was made to look like butterflies. And we put it all together and hung it way up, and two things happened. The, just the natural wind blowing made them move and look like they were real butterflies, but through the, the light, the spotlight on the ground, the shadows really looked like butterflies flying. It was absolutely stunningly beautiful. We showed it to the parents and they loved it and took some pictures and we invited them to come to First Holy Communion for the rest of the class that Jake would have been in and they said, no father, it's too painful. And I said, I understand, I understand. And so we left it up, it was put up round First Communion as a kind of a memento and we kept it up. People just loved it. And the thing I noticed was little children just loved it. They would look up at it, they would lay on the ground and just stare at it, or they would look at the, they would chase after the butterfly shadows. It really, it was really special to them. And we kept it up about four or five months. Then I noticed it started to come down a little bit. The, the line was starting to, and I didn't want it to fall on people. So we had to take it out. We took it out on a Friday, and that Sunday we had a baptism. It was a neat baptism. The parents had thick accents. They were from Croatia. And they were baptizing a child, and the child's name was Dublin. Croatian parents. Child Dublin. I said, how did you come by the name Dublin? Well, we were driving through Michigan, and we saw a town named Dublin. We thought that'd be a good name. I said, I'm glad you didn't drive through Kalamazoo. <laughs> and Dublin looked like Mike Erlacher before he got his hair transplanted. Totally bald, moose of a little baby. And I said, this is the healthiest little guy I've seen. And they both started to cry a little bit. He had been born very premature. And uh, his grandmother died just when he was born. And they prayed to her that he would survive, and he did, and now he was thriving. And all this was nice, and I get ready to baptize this little guy, Dublin, and I look at him. Now there's nothing up. He points to where that light was, and goes like this and starts to laugh and smile. And I think maybe he saw Jake up there, and maybe he even saw his grandmother. Maybe we tore open a little portal to heaven there. But I got to tell you, after that, maybe 200, 250 more baptisms before I retired, at least two-thirds of the little ones would somehow point or look up there and smile. Little ones see some things that we don't see. They maybe begin to understand things we don't understand. We forget that. We lose that. What do we lose? The word is innocence. And so maybe I want to end this by saying the best way we can understand God is to try to be a little bit more innocent, a little less world-weary, a little less cynical, a little less scarred. Let's find a little bit of that innocence in there and we can respond to God's call a little bit better. So God calls us. We hear that call. We try to understand that call. 
Tomorrow we'll look at how to respond to that call that we hear and that we think tonight maybe we can help to find some understanding for. And that will help us even become a better family of faith. So, again, like last night, I ask you to please stay seated or kneel, whatever you're more comfortable with. Please be seated or kneel. And just still your mind a little bit, listen to the music that'll be playing. Last night I asked you to think of times when you felt God's call, things were going well. Tonight, think of a story from your life when things were a little bit more empty, a little bit hollow. Maybe your relationship fell apart. or a separation with death. A job loss. <coughs> An illness putting you down. Depression covering you like a dark cloud. You were lied to. Friendship ended. Somehow you made sense out of it even though it might still be a struggle or a pain. You didn't give up or you wouldn't be here tonight. And maybe the only way you could find God was in emptiness, but God was still there. That struggle makes us better, believe it or not. Maybe we can let go of it by thanking God. Thank you for the struggle. And by the way, Lord, I've had enough of that struggle. I don't need any more. Let yourself understand come to an understanding with God. And don't worry, it doesn't happen here tonight, maybe tomorrow. God will be there. All you have to do 
like Samuel, will say, here I am, Lord. I come to do your will. For the Jakes in our lives, for those who've made us angry, for those who have left us whom we miss so dearly, for those who are with the Lord, for those who are suffering and we are not capable of giving them help that they need, for our close loved ones, for ourselves, let us pray. Loving God, you wouldn't call us unless you would help us to understand what you want of us. Give us the faith, the trust, the love, the openness to understand what you ask of us and help us one day to join with you and with all of our loved ones in the eternity of heaven where we will be filled with understanding and every tear will be wiped away. We ask this through Christ our Lord. And now may Almighty God bless you, keep you in all on God's loving care. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so very much. Oh, 
from my car. 